So tonight I'd like to talk about healing separation. The concept of renunciation is one that's talked about a lot in Buddhism. And it's often used in reference to the monastic form of people taking up robes and leaving the world and devoting themselves to the cultivation of their spiritual life through vows and precepts. Tonight I'd like to speak about renunciation in using the word to refer to not the outer form, but renunciation as the letting go, not of worldly life, but of everything in our minds and in our hearts and in our bodies, which separates us from being fully present, fully present with all parts of ourselves and fully present with others. In this meaning, it's not the outer form, which is important, but the inner experience. I'd like to tell a story about Ananda Maya Ma, who was a great Indian saint, a woman in India in this century. And she was very revered, very respected, very well known in India. She lived a very simple life, spending most most of her time in meditation. And so, as is the case in India, one day she was visited by a kind of delegation of very wealthy uh, business people. And they came into her small cell where she spent her days. And um, they greeted her and they said, We've come to see you because you are a great renunciate. Thinking that would be a respectful and flattering thing to say to her, they were very surprised at her response because she immediately burst out laughing and sort of fell on the floor and was sort of rolling around laughing hysterically for some minutes, you know, and they were like amazed. And finally she spoke, she looked up at them and she said, you, you who have given up the love of God, the worship of God, the service of God, you are the great renunciates. I salute you. It seems that as human beings, it is our common plight to often feel quite separate and isolated. And in response, very humanly, we have invented many social forms to try to overcome or alleviate that sense of sometimes painful separation, loneliness. So we have a whole variety of ways in which humans get together to try to overcome this sense of isolation. Like-minded people getting together, everything from intimate relationships to marriage to family to cults to secret societies to political parties to support groups to hiking groups to religions. 
people look to all kinds of forms to help them overcome feelings of isolation and separation. And perhaps at times these do help to alleviate that feeling to some degree, help us to feel more connected. But these ways of getting together cannot, by their very nature, do the whole job. Because the cause of our basic sense of separation is in our own minds and hearts. Thomas Merton wrote, What can we gain by sailing to the moon if we're not able to cross the abyss that separates us from ourselves? This is the most important of all voyages of discovery, and without it, all the rest are useless. The abyss that separates us from ourselves. It seems that in this silence and the aloneness of a meditation retreat, we often come directly up against the abyss. What is it that often keeps us feeling separated, isolated, lonely? What is it that separates us from ourselves, from our true being? Dujum Rinpoche said, Your deadliest enemies, the ones who have kept you tied to samsara through countless lives from beginningless time up until the present, are the grasping and the grasped. That's it, the grasping and the grasped. Grasping, the root cause of our suffering, holding on. We can and do hold on to almost anything, as many of you are seeing in your practice now, even when something is unpleasant. It seems to offer us something. Even that which is unpleasant, even that which we don't like, we find ourselves holding on. Why? Why do we do this? It seems that we think our security lies in this holding, our survival lies in this holding. Holding on creates the illusion of security. Whether it's holding on to a thought, or to some feeling, or emotion, some belief about ourselves, perhaps a habit. Some of you know the um, Nasruddin's story about the time that Nasruddin was seen distributing breadcrumbs all around his house. And his neighbor saw him and he said, Nasruddin, what in the world are you doing? And he said, oh, I'm keeping the tigers away. And they said, Nasruddin, there's, there's no tigers for thousands of miles. And he said, effective, isn't it? <laughs> We all have our little habits that imagine, we imagine that they are protecting us from some danger, that our survival is somehow dependent on this habit. And it may not be logical, like I'm saying, it just may be a felt sense in the body that we cannot let go. And when we hold on in this way, we, we, we become identified with that which is held. And so this holding perpetuates the illusion of a continuous self. The very act of holding on then becomes the abyss 
that separates us from our true nature, our Buddha nature. And this manifests in many ways, and tonight I'd like to speak about four ways that our holding on can commonly manifest and that we can identify on retreat. first way I'd like to speak about is really about forgetfulness. We forget why we are here. We forget what we're doing here in this human realm. There's a story I'd like to tell about a king who was a very wise, gracious king, and he had a had ruled a peaceable kingdom for many, many years. And as he was getting older, his wife had died, his only son had been killed in battle, and so he had no heir to pass the kingdom on to. And so he was wondering what to do, and in his compassion and his kindness, he decided that he would sort of break the rules and open open up the possibility for a candidate to be found in the countryside who he would name as heir. So he sent his ministers out into the countryside and put out the word that all anyone who wished at all could come and apply for the position of being heir to his considerable kingdom, much wealth and much power. So the word got out that on this particular day that everyone who wished to apply should come to the palace. So the day came, and there was a long line of people, and he had instructed his ministers and servants just how to take care of the people and what to do when they came. So they opened the doors, and the first thing that they were offered was a bath. Many of them were poor people who lived in the country and didn't own much. They were poor, so they were given a bath. So they were... Uh, escorted into these very lovely baths and given all kinds of wonderful perfume soaps and big tubs to loll around in and scrubbers to scrub their bodies and shampoo for their hair and wonderful oils to put on their skin and just had a great time, you know, going to the baths. And then they were ushered into a great costume room where they could choose their new clothes to wear to go up to be... um, interviewed by the king. So they went in the wardrobe room and they all got very busy looking at all the clothes and trying on different outfits and, well, what do you think about this? Or maybe I should wear that and different colors and fabrics. And they really spent a lot of time in there just trying on all kinds of things. And some got a little greedy and put on two outfits. And then when they were finished in there, they were ushered into a great feast. And this feast had everything from soup to nuts and lots and lots of different dishes to taste and a great array of wonderful food. And they could have as much as they want. So, of course, many of them went back for seconds or thirds. And they just couldn't believe it. It was just so generous. And it was just such a wonderful feast. And after the feast, there were some entertainers brought in, some musicians who played, and they just started dancing and singing and having the best time. Well, meanwhile, the king is upstairs waiting for a candidate to appear to interview him. 
The day is going on, and pretty soon it's like late afternoon, and nobody yet has come. So finally, he, you know, he calls to his minister, and he said, "Well, where are they? I'm, I'm, I'm waiting. I can't wait to meet these people. Where are they?" And the minister sort of chagrined and says, "Sire, I'm sorry to tell you this, but they've all gone home. They took the soap. They took the..." perfume lotions, they stuff their, their clothes, they put the clothes on, they put the food inside their pockets, they've taken the food, they've taken the wine, they've taken everything, and they've gone, they've left. And this is kind of the story of all of us here in the human world. We come into the world and we get very busy, very distracted, with one sensory pleasure after another, amassing more of this. How great to have so many cars, how great to have so many much clothes, how the technology that's coming out, we must get more fax machines, more computers. We get very lost and distracted in this whole realm of the pursuit of the material. Not that it's bad or wrong, it's just that it, it takes an enormous amount of time and energy, and it's very easy to get lost. It's very easy to forget what we are doing here. Ramakrishna said, people weep rivers of tears because they don't have a child or can't get money. But who sheds even one teardrop because she has not seen God? We have forgotten who we are. Like the Hindu baby in the womb who cries as she's about to be born. She says, Lord, let me remember who I am. And her first cry on being born is, Lord, I've forgotten already. We forget. We get distracted. Another very predominant cause of this sense of separation and isolation internally and from other people, it's really a big one in our lives and it's one that is fairly constant, is the unwillingness to forgive. The lack of forgiveness in our lives disturbs our peace and creates a lot of inner division. The ability to forgive restores our wholeness. When we don't forgive, it's like we're holding our heart in bondage, and the person we most harm in not forgiving is often ourselves. To understand what it means to forgive is really to understand and remember deeply who we are, whether we call it emptiness or no-self or Buddha, a remembering that is so profound that no act, no matter how violent, closes our heart. There's a beautiful story of the Dalai Lama that touched me very much when I heard it, and I'd like to share it with you about forgiveness. He, being a very loving, compassionate man and subject to tremendous uh, 
suffering of his people. One day, he was giving a teaching to some Westerners in Dharamsala. The person who told me this was at this teaching. And um, it was an elaborate puja and teaching, and there was a lot of ritual, and there was a lot going on. And usually that takes place in a kind of, you know, space, and nobody interrupts. But that particular day, in the middle of this elaborate ceremony, a messenger came running in with, some telegrams for the Dalai Lama and stop the whole ceremony. And the Dalai Lama opened these telegrams and he read them and he immediately began to weep. He just stood there and wept. Again, which was a very striking thing to see this man who so many love and respect. and I mean, just to break down and weep like that was quite a moment. And people were kind of worried. Oh, my goodness, what could this be? And then he said, this is very bad news. This tells about the death from torture of, you know, 10 monks and 15 nuns who had been tortured by the Chinese in Tibet and died. Probably he knew some of those people. So he told the news, and then a moment later he looked at everyone and he said, And now we must pray for the Chinese. So deep is his understanding of connectedness, so deep is his compassion, so deep is his constant presence in his being of forgiveness, that that was his response. How many of us could respond in that way? Also, another story which was challenging and inspiring was told by Thich Nhat Hanh when he was in Berkeley several years ago when the Iraq war was just uh, at its peak. And there was a lot of um, peaceful protest in Berkeley against the war. And I believe earlier that day Thich Nhat Hanh had met with the protesters and talked to them, and that night he was giving a public talk, and he said that he admired very much the work of the peace protesters, the peace marchers, but that he felt he needed to encourage them to go one step further in their peacemaking, not only to protest, he said, but in order to really make peace, he encouraged them to sit down and write a love letter to George Bush. Uh, This was pretty startling, pretty challenging, pretty confronting. Wow, write a love letter to the one who is sending arms and planes and bombs. So often we shut people out of our hearts very automatically. Who have we shut out? Could we write them a love letter? Sometimes the person that we have most shut out of our hearts is ourselves. And it's not, uh, it wouldn't be uh, a mistake to write yourself a love letter.
Forgiveness happens in all kinds of ways. I have a friend who grew up in Chicago, and he told me that he has found wholeness and peace by forgiving the Chicago Cubs for not winning the World Series since 1908. <laughs> he said it really changed his life. <laughs> now, I think it's important to say that to forgive is not to condone another's abuse or unskillful action or unconscious behavior. It doesn't mean to open yourself to being run over or abused or not treated well. You can establish firm boundaries. You can say, no, this is not acceptable, without putting that person out of your heart. As some say, you can throw someone out of your house, but never throw them out of your heart. That is our challenge. And it's a considerable one. Forgiveness is one of the constant companions with us on this journey. Forgiving all that we don't like in ourselves or others. Forgiving all that we are offended by. Understanding the deeper wisdom of staying connected with our heart. Rumi, the poet Rumi, said, Out beyond ideas of right and wrong, there is a field. Will you meet me there? We can apply this to a lot of different situations in our lives, in our relationships. We can also apply it to ourselves. We can, it's as if our heart is asking this question of us. Can we, in our meditation, let go of our limited beliefs and opinions and ideas of right and wrong. Am I doing it right? Am I doing it wrong? Our judgments, our stories, our agendas, our self-images. And meet ourselves as if for the first time, no right, no wrong. This is the possibility which meditation offers, meeting ourselves in a place with no rules, no history, no right and wrong, no shoulds, no agendas, no fear. It is a place we can contact in our meditation, a place of aloneness, because no family or friends or loved ones can accompany us there, and also of deep connection and intimacy with the vastness of our being and thus with all of life. In this meeting, beyond right and wrong, we can see life as it is, just as it is in the moment, a constant fleeting process of change, the fluid dance of mind and body. And in our ability to be present and open, wonder and appreciation naturally arise as well as a deep feeling of intimacy and connectedness with life. It's the image that Christina has used sometime of the hermit saint in Rishikesh who every day goes from his hut out to a nearby waterfall and stands there all day 
stands by the waterfall, and at the end of the day, he bows to the waterfall and says, well done, well done. The secret of meditation is in this. Could we, at the end of each sitting or at the end of a day on retreat, bow inwardly to the waterfall of our own minds outpouring all the thoughts and feelings that have come forth and say, well done, well done. Could we bow inwardly to our body, to its life-sustaining activity, to its aches and pains, and say, well done, well done. This is the possibility. Another major way in which we keep ourselves separate and isolated, another way in which grasping and holding on manifest almost constantly at times in our experience, is in the burdensome practice of judging. The mind which is constantly judging, condemning this, comparing, evaluating, liking, disliking, having opinions. We judge ourselves usually very unmercifully and very constantly. We judge others sometimes quite harshly. And it's kind of interesting on a meditation retreat to see how easily these judgments get formed. It seems the less information we have about someone, the more easy it seems to judge them. Have you noticed that? And what does all this judging produce? Does it produce peace, happiness, contentment, serenity? What does it actually produce? Agitated thinking, uneasiness, comparison, Fear, arrogance, uncertainty, anxiety, isolation. And even positive judgment, curiously enough, also produces ideas of separation. And suddenly we get a very inflated notion about how well we're doing or, you know, gosh, I must have, I don't know what I'm doing here. I've already mastered this. I might as well go home or, or, Judgments of other people, you know, they're so good, they're really just terrific at this, they're really the best, and I'm no good in comparison. And In all of this activity, we forget our common humanity. We create these walls when we judge others, when we judge ourselves. I must have baseball on my mind because I thought of the Sutra of Yogi Berra. He has a lot of good ones. This one is, it's not what we don't know that gets us into trouble. It's the what we know for sure that just ain't so. It's the what we know for sure that just ain't so that actually obstructs our view of reality and creates more separation. And nowhere does this seem to be more true than in our thoughts about who we are, in our limited beliefs and definitions of self. Now, we all want to be the hero, the heroine, the bodhisattva, 
the perfect yogi, the saint, the warrior, the arhat, the goddess, the loved, admired, respected, successful, victorious, warrior, victor, wonderful, joyful, wise, serene, compassionate, you, you know, we all want to be that. And we may have our little moments, you know, but what about the part of ourselves that is the tyrant, the wicked witch, the slob, <laughs> the failure, the needy, neglected child, the complainer, the bag lady, the derelict, the victim. Do we leave these parts at the door of the meditation hall? Or can we allow them in? Can we let them in to our hearts and to our minds? Can we open to the part of ourselves which we most despise, most fear, most reject, feel most ashamed of? Can we do that? Can we open our heart to these parts of ourselves? Or are these to remain rejected pieces of ourselves, sort of forever banished and feared? Now, it's true that sometimes some of us and some people more than others may own only these parts and disown all the positive side. But whatever, whether we own the positive or negative, whatever we don't own, whatever we don't own in ourselves, chances are it gets projected out onto others. It's an interesting psychological trick. You know, he's so critical, or he's a slob, or he's really angry or she's so needy, she's so complaining all the time. Or, you know, think of something that really annoys you about others. I really don't like people who are fill in the blank. And ask yourself the question, is that something perhaps you have rejected in yourself that you can't tolerate in yourself? If you can't tolerate it in yourself, you won't be able to tolerate it in anybody else. So we go around collecting these bits of ourselves, wanting this part to be true and not wanting this other part to be true. And in the process, we are actually making up a story as we go of who we think we are. And we can really see this on retreat because, you know, we have a lot of time to watch the story that we are constantly constructing. Not much is happening to you here. Not much feedback, not much uh, people giving you feedback, not much, you know, opportunity to imagine it's coming from somewhere else. You can really see who is making up the story of my life. Wow, I guess it's me. You know, there's the story of the man who was dreaming one night that he was being chased by a monster. And the monster was chasing him and chasing him and chasing him and finally grabbed him and threw him down on the brown, ground and seemed about to, you know, attack him. And the man looked at the monster in terror and said, what is going to happen to me? 
And the monster looks at him and says, I don't know, it's your dream. <laughs> it is our dream. It is our dream. And based on the kinds of experiences we have as we sit here and go through the days together, we see that we create the dream often by arriving at conclusions about ourselves. You know, we have a, we have a bad sitting, what we call a bad sitting. And this just confirms how terrible you are at this meditation. And then you may have a pretty good sitting, and now you're on your way to becoming sort of, you know, special or really a good yogi. We're arriving at another a conclusion about ourselves. Sometimes we appear to ourselves as gods. Sometimes we appear to ourselves as devils. Which are we to believe? Sometimes we believe one thought about ourselves. Sometimes we believe another. And when we are in it, we really believe it. How can we know for sure which is true? Who is going to tell us? We come here in part because we do want to know who we are. But when we look to our thoughts to tell us, this is important, when we look to our thoughts to tell us who we are, we are looking in the wrong place. I have a friend in San Francisco who um, had been a monk, actually, for some years. He'd done a lot of practice. In any case, he's no longer a monk. He was riding his bicycle in San Francisco one day, and he, was, uh, he had an accident, and he fell off of his bike and hit his head and got, had a concussion, and he had to go to the hospital. And when he woke up in the hospital, he had amnesia. He had absolutely no idea who he was. Absolutely none. And this went on for about a week. And he was telling me about it later, and he said, what was so curious was that he was very, very peaceful. <laughs> He had never experienced such peace in his whole life. People came to visit him. Even his mother came. He had no idea who she was. He had no memory of anything. He had no definitions of himself. He had no story. And he was extremely peaceful. Now, I think this is very interesting. Because we keep looking for peace in the definitions and in the story. Evidently, that's not where it's found. We don't need all these definitions in order to be peaceful. Some spiritual traditions express this understanding by using the words, I am to point to our essential identity. You could say our original nature, which is peace itself. In some spiritual traditions, they say, it's an exercise, and I'll do it with you. They say, take away 
your favorite definition of yourself, you know, whatever it is, mundane or special. I am a man, I'm a woman, I'm a teacher, I'm a carpenter, I'm a mother, I'm a father, or I'm very unworthy, or I'm depressed, or I'm angry, or I'm no good, or... Take away the definition and just stay with I am. Just rest in I am. Just I am. Is this I am ever absent? No, it's rather our constant companion. It was present with you when you were born. It was present with you when you were four years old. And it will be present with you until the time you die. And perhaps later, it is ageless. This I am is present with you no matter what the content of your experience is. We may not notice it because we get identified with the content and we lose touch with it, but this simple I am is always present with us. We usually define ourselves more by the content. I'm so happy, I'm so depressed, or I'm disturbed, or I'm whatever. We define ourselves more by that than by our presence, by our, you could say, our I amness. And meditation practice really is a shift of attention from the content, happy, sad, to the process, to just thinking, just feeling, just breathing, just hearing, without any elaboration, just I am. No me, no my, no mine, No one special required to do breathing or to do hearing or to do walking. No one special is required to do that. But we make ourselves incredibly special. I'm really breathing well today. (laughs) I mean, it's pretty funny when you think about it. There's no doing required at all in this practice. Just noticing what's already occurring. Just knowing yourself as the spacious presence of awareness itself. Just I am. I aming. In this presence, there is no identification with the content of our experience. We can accept whatever rises without getting entangled, without getting caught, without getting hooked. Just being present in this simple, direct way. Any way in which we become identified with one part of ourselves and reject another part of ourselves, creates separation and separation from others. 
Meditation asks that we heal the separation. It really does. I mean, it's, it's really hard to sit for any length of time without this issue really presenting itself because we can't keep cutting off these parts of ourselves. When we sit and we open, we open to it all and all of it is going to come forward and ask for healing, ask to be included, ask to be seen, accepted, loved. To be healed is to be whole. And meditation is the living laboratory of our healing. As we open to all that arises in our mind and body and know it in its actuality, not our ideas about it, but in its actuality, as fleeting thoughts, emotions, sensations, even when they are unpleasant, fearful, can we meet Whatever arises, not with judgment, not with denial, not with resistance, but with an open heart and clear seeing. Can we see the difficult which arises, not as proof of failure, but as a teaching of what it means to be a human being and therefore subject to the whole catastrophe the full range of pleasure and pain, light and dark, sweet and sour, difficult, easy. When we reconnect with all the parts of ourselves from which we have separated, when we do this, we are actually helping to heal the world. For the degree to which we accept the totality of our mind stream will we be able to accept the totality of another's? So that when your child is cranky or your boss is impatient or your partner is worried or you're in a traffic jam on the freeway, you won't be so likely to react with aversion, with judgment, with criticism, with condemning, with anger, creating more separation but rather find a way to heal by staying open and connected. We have a greater capacity for compassion for others' pain when we have opened to our own pain. Judgment creates separation. Forgiveness and compassion create connection. The choice is ours. So just to briefly review this abyss that separates us from ourselves that I spoke of at the beginning contains all the ways in which we distract ourselves and forget what we're doing here. This abyss contains all the holding on to the grudges and resentment, the lack of forgiveness. It contains all the judgments we have about ourselves and others contains all the disowned parts of ourselves, who we hope we're not, or who we think we're not. It contains this identification with the story as being who we are. All of this creates separation, and all of this can be healed in our practice. As I said in another talk, the Diamond Sutra talks about freedom 
as the mind which clings to nothing. To be free is possible in any moment when we are free of clinging and free of resistance. And to be free of clinging, ironically, is to be intimate with all things, with all that arises in our minds and bodies. No resistance, no getting lost, no spacing out, just being intimate, just being here with breath, with sound, with sensation, with thought, just noticing. In the Zen tradition, a person's liberation is sometimes described in this way. Suddenly, she was intimate. I like that because so often we think of Liberation is some sort of transcendence. It's just the opposite, actually. It's bringing us directly into connection, into the deepest intimacy with life that we can never know. To awaken means to be intimate with all things. No more separation. This is freedom. So, let's sit together for a moment. May all beings live with forgiveness. May all beings live with open-heartedness. May all beings heal separation. This talk was given by Anna Douglas at Insight Meditation Society on July 27, 1994. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed.